So I just want to ask first, John, John's uh, a man who has an incredible reason to rejoice in terms of what God has done uh, in and through Hume in his life. And so just a minute, John, we'd love just to hear your testimony briefly and uh, just rejoice with you. Excellent. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, we rejoice with you. We really do. And um, I'd love for at least one person just to thank the Lord for the many salvations that have taken place at this uh, incredible camp and through Hume in, in other geographies as well. And uh, having the historian here, just that we would thank God and ask that that work of salvation would continue. It would be so wonderful. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. After last night, we went back um, to one of the cabins with, uh, with a couple that we just met called uh, David and, and, and Elizabeth. We have sort of common friends, and we were just sharing uh, some dessert. You know, after I said that I, I have temptation with bakery, they, uh, <laughs> they tempted me. But anyway, we were sitting there, and, and on a more serious note, they've got uh, four daughters, um, two are foster daughters, and they got a tragic, tragic phone call from their oldest foster daughter to say that her husband had just been killed in a car accident. And I don't know his name, but it was, as you can imagine, a horrific, horrific uh, shock to them. I've been going back and forth both with them today and also their pastor, who I know well. And I just love for someone as well to, to pray for God's comfort on that family in the midst of their terrible loss. He was a man, a young man. They'd been married for four years, um, serving Jesus, so we can rejoice that he's face-to-face -face with Jesus. But leaving a young bride and uh, just the, the real sadness of that. I'm not wanting that to be a downer, but this is church, that we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And as we do, our hearts get deeper and our worlds get larger. Amen. So I wonder if we could have just two volunteers. One, just saying at the back, who, who are you going to pray for, David and Elizabeth or thank God for the salvations? Great. Thanks, Arthur. And who's going to thank God just for the salvations and may that work continue strongly? Thank you. What is your name? Great. Let's, let's just agree in faith as they pray. Go for it, Arthur.
Yes. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. We're going to continue in our Hebrew series uh, from Hebrews 6, and I simply want to try and answer a very simple question, uh, but an absolutely essential one, and that is, can we trust God? Can we trust God? And for many of you, you go, well, of course we can, and that's the right answer, but the answer is a little bit more complex than that, and especially when we are faced with some of these shocks and twists and turns, uh, we find ourselves wrestling with that. And Hebrews is a book about faith. And uh, it uses the word faith in different ways. We've talked, we've made reference to the Hebrews 11 uh, Hall of Fame of, uh, of faith heroes. And uh, it's been, been wonderful just doing even quizzes uh, uh, around that. And Hebrews describes faith in that um, chapter as the assurance of things hoped for. Let me give, let me ask you to shout out some other words that are similar words in the Bible for faith. Uh, assurance is one. What, what are some other words for faith that are biblical words? Belief, yeah. Confidence, yeah. Trust, yeah. What's that? Promises, yeah, absolutely. Um, Christianity is, a lang in the, is the language of faith, and so there are these many describing words for, for faith. But I think one of the things that Hebrews tries to help us to do is to distinguish between trust and belief. And, uh, you know, talking of history, there was, a, there was a man called Charles Blondin in 1859, uh, he was a circus master, an acrobat, and he took a tightrope and he stretched it across the Niagara Falls, 160 feet above the water, these thundering, thundering falls from the Canadian side to the American side. And uh, crowds gathered, and he tightrope walked across from America to Canada. And news about him spread, and he said, I'm coming back the next day. Uh, and the next day, he took a bicycle, and he rode it across from Canada to America. And everyone oohed and awed. This is true. It's, it's historic. And uh, the next day, he said, I'm going to walk it with a frying pan and a gas fryer, and I'm going to cook an omelet. And he said to the crowd, do you believe I can? And they said, yes, yes, we believe. And the crowds gathered, and there he did. He cooked an omelet as he walked to the Canadian side. Uh, 
And then uh, the final time, he took a wheelbarrow. And he said, how many of you believe that I can get this wheelbarrow across from Canada to United States? And everyone said, yes, we believe. Yes, we believe. And he said, well, who's going to be the first one to jump into the wheelbarrow? And of course, no one did. That's the difference between belief and trust. The, the crowds believed, but did not trust. And each one of us have come to points where we've known that we need to move from belief, this mental assent that, yeah, 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 we're pretty sure that you can do this, God, to an actual trust where we rest the whole weight of our life on God's promises. And uh, so we're going to read a, a passage about the way in which God promises and why He is trustworthy and why we can trust Him. Hebrews 6, verse 13, the little chapter heading will say the certainty of God's promise. Seven verses, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thanks be to God for His Word. Amen. When I talk about the difference between belief and trust, it causes me to think of my testimony, even thinking of uh, hearing John's testimony. I grew up in a pastor's home. I grew up in a household of faith, and just so thankful that my mom and dad have rarely lived uh, what they've taught uh, over 50 years. And uh, most of my dad's life has not been paid as a pastor. He's been a marketplace pastor. He's had a business, and he's served the church free of charge, and that's been an amazing thing to see. Both my mom and dad have just led exemplary lives. But I still had kind of this just wandering soul. I was fascinated by the world, and uh, at age 13, I, I just didn't know whether I wanted to f I could follow in my parents' footsteps. They seemed way too good. And so I fell into a group of friends and started to experiment with all sorts of stuff that 13-year-olds um, shouldn't experiment with. And I actually wanted to stop going to church. And my dad said, no, as long as you uh, live under my roof, you will come to church. And then after that, you can make your own decision. And then I just think they prayed like anything. And I found myself in uh, a youth room. I can't even remember the speaker. There's probably about 100 people there. But I sat right at the back, arms folded, pretty rebellious. And uh, as the gospel was, was preached, I just sensed the love of God. That's all I can say. I sensed the love of God and I felt 
really hungry. I was there not for the gospel, I was there for the girls. Uh, but I actually felt a hunger to know the love of God. And I just remember after everyone had gone out, I just, I just said, God, I need your love. I want your love. That was the first moment of, for me, owning my faith, the faith that had been taught by my parents. But like most teenagers, um, there was kind of one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and I just wrestled and struggled like many, many teenagers do. And uh, age 16, I was playing rugby, and so I kind of fell in with a rugby crowd, which is quite a partying crowd. And we were at uh, this Irish beer fest. Uh, and I was a 16-year-old drinking warm German beer and listening to bad Irish music. Uh, but I just felt like it was so cool because I was breaking the law and it was awesome. And uh, all I can say is that I felt an incredible sense of loneliness and emptiness in the middle of that party. And I walked outside the tent, and uh, it was on big soccer grounds, and I just lay down on the field. And I just looked up at the stars, and I just said, God, I feel lonely. And the presence of God just filled me. And, and gave me a satisfaction that no warm German beer could. And I went home that night um, just knowing that I actually had to leave those friends. It was very, very difficult. And I told my mom, Mom, um, I repented last night and I asked Jesus to be Lord of my life. And uh, she said, my son, I've been praying for years that you would be miserable in your sin. <laughs> Mama's prayers. Who can resist mama's prayers, right? That was a moment where belief turned to trust. Uh, there was a risk. There was a cost. I'm not saying that I wasn't saved as a 13-year-old, but actually belief turned to trust. There was a real cost in leaving those friends. Um, some of those friends are still my good friends today. I didn't leave them altogether. One of my best friends became a wonderful Christian about five years ago, and he was with me in that beer fest. So I'm not saying that you just desert your friends, but there needed to be a line in the sand at that time when belief turned to trust. Each one of us will have those moments. And uh, that's, that's something of my story. And I know I've now used up nine minutes of my time. But I just want from this passage to encourage us with the fact that trust is vital, that trust is possible, and that trust is practical. Just three simple insights into this passage. First, that, that trust, trusting God, is, is vital. Verse 19, which is the real key of this verse, says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. What's this? It's God's promise, God's oath to Abraham. We have this as a steadfast anchor for the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Trust is vital, and it's described as a steadfast anchor for the soul. I love that description. And it's vital because the world, the world in which we live, is like water. It's fluid. It changes. It's not steadfast. Trust in God is vital because actually we need a steadfast 
anchor for the soul in a world that changes all the time. About two months ago, I was fascinated by the Facebook time hop photos from two years ago, where all the families in our church were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed about to just have two weeks of homeschool experiments before we crashed the virus, before we, do you remember, we were sent home for two weeks, and, and all of us were like, this is going to be fun, you're just going to have a little homestay, it's going to be awesome, and I just chuckled to go, we never saw what was coming. Two years later, we go, oh my gosh, that was not two weeks, that was, what was that? Just an example of how the world is like water. It's not steadfast. It's not sure. Things that we are absolutely sure are, are rock steady suddenly move. Cultural trends move. Politicians rise and fall. Sexual ethics shift. We feel like we're caught in these tides that change people that we were absolutely sure that they'll be here as an anchor for my soul. They move out of state. Church leaders that, that we go, oh, they'll always be steady. They disappoint us. Uh, this last two years, my primary mentor had to step down from ministry. And I went, oh, I need another anchor for my soul. I thought he was so steadfast. Each one of us have had either family members or mentors or leaders or, or friends that we just, I, I, can, I, I can absolutely bank on them being here. And then we get disappointed. And we, we, we're reminded that Psalm 103 says that life is like grass. It, it withers. It's not like a tree. It withers. The world is like water. And that's why trust is absolutely vital, that this description of an anchor in the water is the description of who Jesus is to us. And in fact, it says it's, it's an anchor that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's a strange image, isn't it? It's like, well, I thought an anchor goes into the water. John Piper says about this verse, he says, an anchor through the curtain goes up and not down. Not only provides stability, but draws us upwards into the holy place of God's presence where we find stability through trust. So Hebrews tells us that Jesus, after he finished his work on the cross, rose from the dead, then ascended to heaven. He's passed through the heavens, and there he is in the throne room of grace, and his, the anchor of our trust stretches through where he's gone as a forerunner and is anchored to him. The throne room of grace is immovable. It's stable. It's eternal. The angels and the living creatures and the elders, they, they forever are crying, holy, holy, holy. And essentially what Hebrews is saying is that we are in this water, the water of this world that's shifting and changing all the time, but trust is like an anchor that goes through into this immovable, steadfast place in heaven. It's absolutely vital. How many of us feel the shifting tides of our day, but actually we have this anchor for 
our soul. He said last night that we can approach that throne of grace boldly to find mercy and grace in our time of need. Our souls need the eternal. Our souls are desperate for stability, and we have it in Jesus. So, so trusting God is vital. Secondly, it's, it's possible. It's possible. Because we have a God who is trustworthy, absolutely trustworthy, and he, he demonstrates his trustworthiness. I love this piece. Through Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are called the father and mother of our faith. And I think very often when we think of Abraham, we think of his steadfast faith. And it's true that if we look at the average of his life, if Abraham was a baseballer, I mean, he would have had a very high average of striking. And yet he struck out sometimes. And God demonstrates his trustworthiness through Abraham and Sarah, the father and mother of our faith, to show that actually they had times when they weren't very trusting. But even when they were not very trusting, God was trustworthy. And I want us just to look, verse 13 to 18, at, at what happens here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's Genesis 12. That's what happened. God, Abraham was a pagan. He was not looking for God. God found him. And God promised, Abraham, I will surely bless you. And I will make you a blessing to many nations. And it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God justified him by faith. There was no law that time. And that's a picture of our salvation. And so there was a promise of justification, but there was also a promise of fruitfulness. You will become a mighty nation. How many of you know how old Abraham was in Genesis 12 when God first promised to him that he would bless him and multiply him? Trick question. 75. Well done, 75. And so Abraham believed God, and because he believed him, he actually left the place of his birth. Hebrews 11 says that he left not knowing where he would go. How many of us would like that? God just says, hey, you must leave home. I'm not telling you where. Just pack up and go. Well, he and Sarah did. By faith, they left not knowing where they would go. And this particular passage fast forwards, fast forwards about 25 years. Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65. They were old. They were promised not just one child, a mighty nation will come from you. And they believed. It's incredible. Well, 25 years later, Abraham is now 100. And Sarah is 90 and no baby. There had been an Ishmael on the way, but no child of promise from Sarah. And God comes to him again and says exactly the same thing. Abraham, I will surely bless you and multiply you. And the amazing thing is Abraham, it says Abraham believed God. Can you imagine after 25 years of trusting God and nothing? And I love this. Abraham, it says, and Abraham considered his body and considered his wife's body and saw that it was as good as dead. 
I love how Scripture is just so blunt. I'm just going like, I hope Abraham didn't say what he thought, that my wife's body is as good as dead, because he would have slept on the couch or outside the tent that night, you know? He considered it, and yet it says, but he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And you just go, Abraham, your trust is so strong. Man, I, don't have the, I wouldn't have that trust if after 25 years, God's promise hadn't come to pass. But there's this beautiful glimpse of humanity in Genesis 15, where after believing, God says, hey, I'm not just going to give you a mighty nation, I'm going to give you the land. He promised him the land. And, and Abraham has this moment of humanity, and he just says, God, how will I know? How will I know? I love it. I'm like, okay. He has a model I can follow. He's believing, but, but he's also doubting. And it just reminds me of Jesus' disciples that say, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. I want to say, that is a blessed prayer. Lord, I believe. There's a willingness. My heart is soft, but help my unbelief. It's been 25 years you promised, and I haven't seen it. Please, God. And that's where Hebrews says this wonderful thing. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, Abraham my purpose has not changed for you in 25 years. I'm still dead serious about this. And I'm going to show you how serious I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to not just make a promise, I'm going to make an oath. Today, we make contracts. And if the other person holds up their side of the bargain, we keep the contract. If they let us down, we break contract. God is not a God of contract. He's a God of covenant. And He swears... Not by Abraham, but by himself to show how serious he is. And there's this mysterious moment where he says to Abraham, go and get a heifer, which is a young cow, and split it in two. And he does it. He splits it in two and lay the two halves next to one another. And then there's this mysterious thing where a smoking pot, God puts Abraham into a deep sleep and a smoking pot passes between these two split sides in a figure eight. You can go and check it out in, in Genesis 15. And it's the sign of eternity. In other words, it, it's God saying, my promise, my oath is absolutely unchanging. It is eternal. And the fact that it happened when Abraham was asleep showed that this is not actually conditional on you, Abraham. It's conditional on me. And when I hear that, I just go, that is crazy. That means God will be faithful to us even when we are not. Abraham was sleeping. It wasn't saying, hey, Abraham, you hold up your side of the bargain and I'll hold up mine. He was saying, you'll be sleeping and I will pass between these, the smoking pot. I swear on oath that I will be faithful to you. Let's take that idea back to the wheelbarrow. Imagine if you were standing on the bank and you went, this guy, I think I can trust him. I've seen him walk across. I've seen him fly, fry an omelet. I think I can trust him. I'm not absolutely sure. I'm maybe 70% sure. 
But actually, I'm going to jump in. Belief is going to turn to trust. I'm going to jump in. And imagine if you are 70% sure, but you actually trust and you jump in. You rest the full weight of your life on that person's trustworthiness. Imagine if that happens. And you get across to the other side. I want to ask you this. You were only 70% sure, but are you 100% safe when you get to the other side? Are you or are you only 70% safe? Not a trick question. If you're 70% sure and you get into the wheelbarrow and that person's 100% trustworthy, are you 100% safe or 70%? You're 100%. In other words, in our salvation... What saves us is not the quality of our trust. It's the quality of our Savior. We can be 100% saved, even if we're only 70% sure. Why? Because God is 100% faithful. That's what He demonstrates in Abraham's life. And that means in moments where we're not so sure, God is still fully, fully committed to us. Does he want our trust? Does he want our obedience? Absolutely. But it rests ultimately, our salvation ultimately rests on God's faithfulness, not our faith. Can I get a little amen? We have to let that sink into our souls because otherwise on days where we are doubting and we think we're saved and we think God is good, we think we're only 70% saved. But God says, no, 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 no. I'm 100% faithful and that is absolutely decisive. And verse 18 goes to say, We who have fled for refuge find strong encouragement in God's oath. Don't you love that picture of us in our trust fleeing for refuge? Think about that. We who have fled for refuge find strong encouragement by God's faithfulness. Think of a refugee. Think of a Ukrainian refugee that flees to refuge to Poland. When they land in Poland, are they saying, you've got to let me in, you've got to give me safe sanctuary because look how good I am and look how much I can do for you. No, they're not doing that. They are just coming absolutely relying on Poland's kindness and goodness. We who have fled for refuge, in other words, we don't come full of ourselves saying, well, God, you've got to save me. You've got to multiply me. You've got to fulfill your promises because look how good I am. No, we flee for refuge just saying, God, ultimately, I'm relying on your goodness and your kindness and your mercy. That's what trust does. And you know, I've found that there have been moments, because God does grow our faith. There have been moments when when, when God has responded to strong faith. And there have been other moments when I feel like my trust has been weak, but God has shown himself to be so strong. About 10 years ago, a, a family in our church brought their 10-year-old daughter called Taylor to me and said um, she's been doing leukemia um, therapy and she's finished her therapy and the doctors have sent her home to die. And this is a last resort. We're just asking that you would pray. You would anoint her with oil and pray. And I want to say my trust levels were low. But I just 
believe that the Bible says this. Let the elders anoint with, with oil and pray a prayer of faith. And uh, my trust levels were not very high, but God's faithfulness levels were amazing. And uh, a couple of weeks later, they came back and said her, her test results are clear. And uh, they moved to Florida a few uh, years after that. But uh, quite often on Taylor's birthday, she's now in her 20s, they'll just send me a photo just saying, she's still fine, she's still healthy. I'm just going, God, it was not my faith. I was willing. I got in that wheelbarrow, as it were, but it was your faithfulness, oh God. I think of our church um, and our desire to take God seriously about um, preaching the gospel to all nations, especially unreached people groups. And about five years ago, we sent 20 people to a northern Thai uh, town called Chiang Rai. And uh, we sent some of our dearest friends in that church plant. And um, they began to reach up into the unreached people groups in the hill country, uh, a, a group called the Red Lahu people. And these people were, were known... Uh, for being pretty violent. In fact, uh, about seven years ago, two missionaries had gone up to preach the gospel to them, and they killed them. They pushed them off a cliff. So when I heard that Dan and Marsha, who are some of our dearest friends, were going up to preach the gospel, I was like, please don't, please don't. They were just like, we're trusting God. We're getting into the wheelbarrow, as it were. Oh, please don't, we'll pray here. Anyway, they linked up with some people doing medical missions. And they just said, we're going to have a different approach. We're not going to go and preach the gospel straight away. We're going to go and love these people, take out their bad teeth, heal their wounds. And they actually won them over and then began to preach the gospel. And five years later, we've had 20 people saved and baptized and have built a church there. Isn't that amazing? Uh, that wasn't my faith. That, that was theirs. But we partnered with their faith. God is just faithful. And each one of us have these moments where we go, oh God, let me be like Abraham and Sarah. It doesn't mean that I've got 100% assurance, but there's a willingness to put my life in the wheelbarrow and see you come through. Finally, trusting God is not just possible, but it's sensible. It's sensible. Verse 12 says this, Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what was promised. So, so trust ultimately has to do with God's trustworthiness. He's faithful even when we are unfaithful. But, but there is a call to practically, practically trust God nevertheless. And it's quite practical. It's, it's saying, copy those who are full of faith. Firstly, Abraham and Sarah, but then find people in your church, in your life, in your family, in your, in your friend circle that, that have a faith life that is imitable. Not perfect, but is actually, oh man, their faith is at work. Perhaps it's in business. Perhaps it's in parenting. We, in this stage of parenting, have rarely needed people that have parented young adults because we've never been through it before. And we sit with people, we just say, tell us how we should parent by faith. Because this is different. This is different from parenting teenagers. You, 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 you've got to be a little bit more hands-off. You can't be a helicopter dad and helicopter mom. Teach us. And so trusting God is quite sensible. It's quite 
practical. And I want to give just a few practical hints in growing our trust levels. First, trust has to do with where you're looking. I love this part. Where God comes to Abraham, and in Genesis 15, he says, Abraham, look at the stars. Look at the stars. And then it says, and Abraham considered his body and considered his wife's body. But then it says, and Abraham and Sarah considered God who was faithful. I love this because I think very often we think trusting God means that we deny the facts. And we've been around people that are, oh yeah, I believe God, but they absolutely deny, deny the facts. And they, they kind of unwise and often sometimes silly. You know those people that are like, yeah, I believe God is going to build my business huge and big, but then they won't even just do a good day's work. And you just go, oh, come on, man, just, just look at the facts. Or someone who's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm trusting God for a big house. And you're like, but have you got any money saved up? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't think about that. Don't speak about that. I'm just trusting God. And I think very often we think that trusting God is a denial of reality, of the facts. And Abraham and Sarah are a beautiful picture of actually acknowledging the facts. They looked at their bodies and said, I mean, humanly, this is impossible. 190, this is, the, this is not going to happen. And then it says, but they considered him who is faithful. Trust has to do with where you're looking. In other words, we should acknowledge the facts. It's not being unfaithful to acknowledge the facts, whether it's financial, whether it's physical, whether it's relational. It's not being untrusting to acknowledge the facts. But too often we just let our gaze fix on the facts. We need to put our gaze for a moment on the facts and then we lift our gaze to heaven and we say, but we consider God who is faithful. And then faith comes, and it's faith that's actually sensible. And I want to encourage you about that, whether it's trusting God for a husband or a wife or your job or where you're going to study, perhaps it's your kids. Take some time to acknowledge the facts, even bring the facts to God. You know what? God is not offended by the facts. God knows the facts. And then say, but God, having talked about the facts, now I look at the stars. And I consider you who are faithful. And the beautiful thing is this, and this is what I say to the facts. I say to the facts, facts, I'm not ignoring you, but God who swore is unchangeable, and you are changeable. So facts, whether it's physical or financial or relational or political, facts, you're there, but you will change before God changes. And in that sense, I'm, I'm, I'm not denying them, I'm acknowledging them, but I'm saying, but God will outlast the facts. God's faithfulness will outlast the facts. So trust considers the facts, but looks on to the faithfulness of God. A practical hint, if you are going to trust God, you are going to have to obey Him. There's that old him, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Don't separate trusting and obeying. Abraham, having trusted God, left with Sarah. You've got to at some point leave the bank and get into the wheelbarrow at some point. It's obedience. 
John Wimber many years ago says, said that trust is spelt R-I-S-K, that there's a risk factor to trust, that people are not always going to understand when you leave the bank and get into the wheelbarrow. They come and say, you, you're being silly. You're being a Jesus freak. You're taking this thing too far. And at that point, you need to say, no, 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 I've considered the facts. I haven't checked my brains at the door. I've considered the facts, but now I'm considering him who is trustworthy. And I want to ask you, is there any aspect of your faith life that is risky? And I just want to encourage you, call you to some dynamic of risk. I'm not talking about a lack of wisdom, but that there's some aspect in your life that would make no sense unless God was faithful. Is there some aspect of your life? When God first began to talk to us about planting churches in unreached people groups, I considered the facts of our finances as a church. And I just went, there's no way. We were just making ends meet. How are we going to do this? And we got together as, as elders, and we prayed, and we just said, God, we want to be good stewards of, of our finances. We were paying off debt. God was helping, but, but, but we wanted to be wise. But God, how do we do this? Because we don't want to be locked in just to building a church for the neighborhood. How are we going to reach neighbors and nations? God, we, I mean, you promised, God, we are heirs of the promise that you made to Abraham and Sarah that I will make you give you a family in all nations. We want to be part of that promise, God. And you know how it started? It started small. It started with, at that point, there were six pastors in the church. And we together said, all right, this is how we're going to start. Our own personal tithes to the church, we're going to put them in a separate account, and we're not going to use them for the running of the church. Now, you might think, that's nothing. That's, that's no problem. For us then, that was a big risk. We took, at that point, it was probably about $4,000. And monthly, we put it in a separate account and we said, this is our church planting war chest. And I looked on and I went, I don't know if we're going to be able to pay our mortgage. I don't know if we're going to be able to pay our stuff. Is this, is this? But actually, a year on, God had provided. And we were meeting our, meeting our, our monthlies. And this thing had grown, and this thing had grown. And after about two years, there was about 100 grand there because other people started giving to it, and we started planting our first church. Ten years later, we planted five by God's grace. It's God's faithfulness, but it actually started with a step of risk where together as pastors we said, let's start to do something. Let's get off the bank and into the wheelbarrow. I'm going to be just landing now and asking you this. Who is the person in your life that God is calling you to imitate, that is stronger in their trust than you are? It takes humility to imitate someone. It takes humility. It doesn't mean that that person has got it all together in every area of life. Abraham and Sarah didn't. But perhaps... In their faith for finance, they've got something together. Perhaps in their faith for parenting, they've got it together. Perhaps in their, in their faith in terms of witnessing or laying hands on the sick, they've got it together. And I want to encourage you to go, actually, Lord, 
I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to go to that person. I'm going to ask them, hey, will you teach me how you got here? Will you give me some faith steps because I want to grow? That's helped me so much. I think particularly um, in the area of praying for the sick and seeing them healed. I, I think at the moment I've probably got about a 25% success rate. But I've imitated people who've just seen God heal often. I don't believe God heals 100% of the time. We live in a fallen world. But as I've imitated the faith of those who've seen God come through, my faith has grown. And I want to encourage you to find that person who is imitable and go and humble yourself and talk to them and say, please, I'm not asking you to be perfect, but I'm asking that you would coach me. Faith is vital. Trusting God is possible. And trusting God is practical. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you so much for Abraham and Sarah. Thank you so much for the incredible model of, of faith that they are. We thank you, Lord, that you showed them in this amazing, mysterious oath that what is decisive is your trustworthiness, not our trust. We thank you, Lord, that we can say with the disciples, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we, we confess that very often our belief is too safe. We, we stand on the bank. But you're calling us to get into the wheelbarrow. And so I pray that you would grow our trust. I, I pray that you would help us to find others whose faith we can imitate, that we might grow. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are saved not ultimately because of our 100% faith, but because of your 100% faithfulness. And we want to rest in that. We want to rejoice in it. We thank you, Lord, that you saved John here all those years ago and that you continue to save. Thank you that you are able to keep and hold those who are yours. So we say we trust you. Please grow our trust. And everyone said, amen.